Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We don't really see the world with our eyes. We see with our whole life. And we underestimate how different the same situation looks to other people. And so we may be all at a party and it seems like we're all in the same room, surrounded by the same people, looking at the same things but we are all having very different experiences of the party, depending on our history, depending on our personality structure, depending on a thousand different things. And so the upshot of this is when I'm going to get to know you, I can't just try to imagine what happened to you. And I don't even primarily care what happened to you. I care what you made of what happened to you, what meaning you tell, what meaning you tell now about what happened to you. And so if I'm going to get to know you, that's why questions are so important. I can't try to put myself in your shoes. I have to ask you a question. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. David, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. As I even said before we hit record here, yours are books that I return to over and over again. I, I quote them repeatedly. And even when I'm asked about my favorite books, your name comes up over and over. And you have a new book out called How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others and Being Deeply Seen. Uh, all of which we will get into. But given the subject matter of the book, I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped your values and what you've ended up doing with both your life and your career? Uh, so interesting. I haven't thought about that much. I, sh I should have a good answer for that. My um, parents were academics. Uh, and so they were uh, big readers and writers. And they took seriously the idea that if you read important books seriously, uh, it would change your life. Uh, and I, I've come to believe that to be true, that uh, when you read a book, even it could be a book written by somebody um, 3,000 years ago, uh, they're introducing you to parts of yourself you didn't know. They're naming things in your world that uh, you, it hadn't occurred to you. Uh, and they're giving you, expanding your imagination. And then I think finally they're giving you, when you read a great novel, for example, you don't necessarily have new information, but you've had a new experience and a new emotional experience, and you, you, um, you know what, how to feel in different circumstances. 
uh, and sometimes very strange and alien circumstances. So they've widened your repertoire of emotional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think my parents, having books all the way around the house uh, and reading and writing them, transferred that to me. Well, your parents being academics, I'm the son of a college professor, but one of the things that comes with growing up in the Indian culture is, you know, creative pursuits like writing are great as hobbies, not careers. And I wonder what the narrative in your household about pursuing a creative career like the one you did, uh, what was the, the narrative with your parents about making your way in the world? <laughs> I think I had the opposite pressure. Uh, so it depends on like, I'm get basically fourth generation American. Mm -hmm. And so my great grandfather was a butcher and he was very practical minded. And he wanted his, his kids who were really the first generation to go into something very practical. And so my father, for example, became a lawyer. My grandfather became a lawyer. Uh, though his heart really wasn't in the law. He, his heart, frankly, was in writing and he was really good at writing legal briefs. Um, and he, he wrote letters to the editor of the New York Times almost every day and often got them published. And he was dead by the time I got hired by the Times. Um, but um, uh, I would have loved to have been able to tell him that your grandson got to be a columnist in the New York Times. I think it would have really made him genuinely joyful to, to know that his family had projected in that way. Mm -hmm. And then my mom and dad, um, they were pretty serious intellectuals. So they were um, 1950s, sort of 1960s, 70s, New York Jewish intellectuals. Uh, and I think when I went to journalism, it was a... Um, I don't, I wouldn't say a step back, but it was a, a step a less intellectually rigorous to work for a magazine or newspaper than to be an academic. So I think there was some sense, especially my mom might have felt that I'd not gone into the, the deepest sphere of writing. I'd gone to more popular sphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny because every Jewish podcast guest I've had is like, you know, Jewish household narrative is the same as the Indian one, doctor, lawyer, engineer, failure. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm welcome to my life. Yeah, no, I think that's that's uh, very true. And I, I would say it's genuinely true of a lot of different immigrant groups. They, mm -hmm. you know, they come here and then there's that phase where the family is there. This first or second generation is like, you know, I sort of like my old culture, but I really like this new culture. I'm a little embarrassed by the people in my my grandparents. They're not like hip to America. And then the next generation, they say, no, I really like that old culture that we had. I want to recommit to that. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly um, been true in the Certainly in the Jewish families, I know, and the young 20-year-olds who have, their parents were pretty secular, and now they're diving deep into Jewish faith and Jewish traditions and things like that. Yeah, I found in my own experience that, like, I'm basically trying to reconcile two cultural identities, one of being an Indian American and one of being raised by Indian parents and being this weirdo kid who's like the creative one in a family full of professors and engineers and doctors. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, though I, I was teaching on and off at Yale for 20 years. And what was interesting to me is in the beginning, the kids were Chinese and I'm, I'm not talking about Chinese American students. I'm talking about Chinese students. Uh, they would come over and they would, they really want to do econ. They'd want to do hard sciences. They wanted to do something very practical and that would really be, uh, built, you know, career building in that practical money making also scientific sense. And, but then as the 20 years went by, I had more and more Chinese students wanting to do literature and facing a lot of parental pressure, uh, from parents who didn't want them. But I was, I was really struck to see the more and more young Chinese students saying, no, it's what American University's secret is. The students challenge the professors. The students get to lead. Uh, it's not just we absorb what wise professor says. And that's the kind of life I want to live. 
Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into one of the earliest things you say in the book, which is that being open hearted is a prerequisite for being a full, kind and wise human being, but it's not enough. People need social skills. We talk about the importance of relationships, community, friendships, social connection, but these words are too abstract. The real act of, say, building a friendship or creating a community involves performing a series of small, concrete social actions well, disagreeing without poisoning the relationship, revealing vulnerability at the appropriate pace, being a good listener, knowing how to end a conversation gracefully, knowing how to ask and offer forgiveness, knowing how to let someone down without breaking their heart, knowing how to sit with someone who's suffering, knowing how to host a gathering where everyone feels embraced, knowing how to see things from another's point of view. But this is what struck me the most. You said that these are some of the most important skills a human being can possess, and yet we don't teach them in schools. Some days it seems like we have intentionally built a society that gives people little guidance on how to perform the most important activities of life. Um, and I, I think that that has struck me so much because this is something that I ask anybody who has worked in our education system, because this is a theme like this is one that seems to be ongoing in a lot of my conversations. But let's say that you, David Brooks, were basically, you know, hired away from the New York Times to be the person in charge of education policy for all of the United States or, you know, how would you redesign the entire thing from the ground up based on this perspective? Yeah, well, I wouldn't um, walk away from the traditional <laughs> academics and the, the test scores and the grades I have problems with, but we can talk about that. But, you know, I think I'd, I'd put a lot more emphasis on moral formation. And moral formation sounds like a very pompous, old-fashioned word, but really it's three things. One, it's learning how to restrain your natural selfishness. Uh, two, it's finding a set of high ideals, so you a, a source of meaning and purpose in your life, so you know what ideal you're serving in your life. And three, it's these skills of teaching people to be considerate in the in the concrete circumstances of life. And just to take the third one, uh, through most of American history, uh, we really did teach these skills. The, the schools thought their job was not to get kids into Harvard and Yale. Uh, their job was to get um, to produce young men and women of good character. And so one headmaster said, uh, I try to produce students who are acceptable at a dance, invaluable at a shipwreck. Mm -hmm. And so they mean I, t I teach somebody who, who you can count on and the chips are down. And there's no one way to do this teaching. They did it from the left, the right, the religious, the non-religious. But they gave them, there were things that we would consider kind of absurd. Like there was a, schools used to have things called the courtesy club or the thrift club, how to, how to not throw away all your money. Uh, and then if you go back to the novels, think of the novels of Jane Austen, which uh, those are novels that are really instructions in manners. And now we think that term manners is kind of stuffy and old fashioned. But for people in the 19th and early 20th century, manners were just ways of being kind and considerate. And so the, the world was filled with these institutions of moral formation. Uh, and they were, you know, the Boys and Girl Scouts, the the uh, the Settlement House movement, the Boys and Girls Clubs. And a lot of them have just stopped doing character formation because they don't know what to say. And so they default to, we're just going to help you get a job. Mm -hmm. And so I would, I, if you gave me a magic wand to turn over classrooms, the first thing I would do is I'm going to teach you a series of courses on the different moral ecologies of history. You, it's really stupid to tell young people to come up with their own philosophy of life. Most of us are not <laughs> Aristotle. They can't do, we can't do it. And so one course could be just, here are some of the, the wisest people on earth in the history of humanity have thought. Here's the, the Greek tradition of honor and courage. Here's the Jewish tradition of obedience to law and the covenant, the Christian tradition of humility and grace, the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition, 
the rationalist scientific tradition of, of obedience to reason. And I don't know, try on these different traditions and see what one fits. So you'll have a moral philosophy of life. Yeah. And the second and much more mundane would just be these basic practical skills. Um, you know, I had a student, a young woman who said I've had four boyfriends and all of them ghosted me at the end. And so none of them knew how to have a conversation to break off a relationship. Uh, and of course, she was filled with distrust because she assumed that all the rest guys would also vanish on her. And so just to teach people the basic skills of how to break off a relationship, very practical. Or on the other side, I saw a study recently where they asked people, young men, how many times have you asked a, a man or a woman out on a date? Mm -hmm. And the numbers were vanishingly low. And they discovered one of the reasons was nobody had ever taught them how to flirt or how to ask somebody <laughs> out on a date. So it might be... Uh, it doesn't seem trivial to me to have classes in flirting. How do you flirt? <laughs> and it would make life, lives better. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, so I, I ended up writing this article on Medium that went viral. And then I think the Smarter Living section at the New York Times featured it. And I, I said, I was like, one of our most fundamental skills you know, that basically drives human evolution is our ability to procreate. Yet we know, no, we learn absolutely nothing about how to interact with a member of the opposite sex in school. It's like something you yeah. figure out through trial and error. And to top it off, like I had parents who had an arranged marriage, so they had no model to explain any of this to me at all. <laughs> yeah. You know, I talk to my students um, about marriage a lot. And my students are like, one young woman said to me, marriage is a box that'll come in the mail when I'm 35. So I don't really have to think about it now. I was like, nope, wrong. And so I said, you I advise you not to get married till after 25 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But the, making the marriage decision is just a very important decision. And I used to give them this little sermon, which I'll give you a 30 second version of is first, marriage is a 50 year conversation. Pick someone you can talk to for the rest of your life. And so that's, that's essential. Second, uh, love comes and goes, but admiration stays. Pick someone you admire. Uh, and that'll be a persistent. Uh, and then the third thing is there are three kinds of love, according to the Greeks. There's eros, which is passion. There's philia, which is friendship. And then there's agape, which is selfless giving love. And if you have eros, but nothing else, then you have a hookup, but you don't have a marriage. If you have philia, you have a friendship. But you should have all three. You should feel all three toward this person. And then you can start thinking about marriage. You know, it's funny because I have a, a much cruder version of that as a note titled chemistry connection and compatibility based on my own relationship yeah. experiences. But that was such a beautiful way to say it. And it's funny because one of the quotes that I repeat frequently when people start asking me about decisions is your quote from one of your books. I don't remember which one it was, but you actually said in one of your books, who you marry is the most important decision you'll ever make. Yeah. And so every course in college should be about how to make the marriage decision, the literature of marriage, <laughs> the neuro neuroscience of marriage, the sociology of marriage. I, I've told dozens of college presidents this and no, nobody listens to me. Well, one thing I wonder about is, you know, you, you've talked about this idea of a, a sort of moral ecology that should be taught. What impact do you think that the advances that we've had in technology, things like social media, the Internet have had on the way that young people perceive all of these things and the importance of them? Uh, because, you know, from what I've read about you, from having, you know, dug deep into your work, you as a journalist kind of precede this entire era, like, you know, if I remember correctly, Cal Newport even has referenced you in his own work around deep work um, as somebody who really is is somebody who basically, in a lot of ways, is an icon of what deep work really looks like. Yeah, well, I wake up in the morning um, and I get up at seven and I write every day till 1 p.m. basically. And so I, 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 my wife, when we got married, thought we'd have all these long leisurely breakfasts, but I need to write it. <laughs> I need to write a thousand words before I talk to a human being. So, and, and I used to wear a Fitbit and my Fitbit would tell me I was napping between seven and 1 PM. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't napping. I was doing what I was put on this earth to do, which is to write. And so I, I really do shut myself off at those hours. 
the rest of the day, I'm the same distracted mess that every, everybody else is, um, which is, you know, I was on the plane yesterday and trying to read a book about uh, how to be, uh, how, about our culture, about American culture. And the, the author was talking about how I used to read these 700-page Russian novels, but now he just has to check his phone every 45 seconds. And so I'm reading this guy about his own distraction. Meanwhile, I'm just, I'm checking my phone every 45 seconds as he's describing his need to check his phone every 45 seconds. So that's distraction cube. And so I, I think it's had the deep negative effect on us, uh, our ability to concentrate and do the sort of prudent work we need to do. Second, in the online world, social media world, there's judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere. And so I, I'm a lot of my students and me too are, are extremely sensitive to the hostile criticism that is so easy to bandy about online. Mm-hmm. And finally, and this is a point I've heard from the New York NYU social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, which is that when you're on me- social media, you're not having an experience. You're spending time without experience. And if you spend a lot of time on social media, you will have fewer experiences to draw upon. And those are experiences of good or evil. You've just had experiences of distraction. Yeah. And so a life without experience is going to be a more fragile life, a more unstable life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, I think that layers onto something else that I thought was really interesting that you said. You say that life goes better if you can see things from other people's point of view as well as your own. Artificial intelligence is going to do many things for us in the decades ahead and replace humans at many tasks. But one thing it will never be able to do is create person-to-person connections. If you want to thrive in the age of AI, you better become exceptionally good at connecting with others. So I started mapping out an idea for a book about probably sometime last week because I got into this probably 40 to 50,000 word conversation in one thread with ChatGPT because I just kept asking questions. And then I told it, I need you to ask me questions so I can write this. And I realized what you had said there, I was like, wait a minute, this is actually not just about our ability to communicate with other humans, but also effectively work with AI. Um, and so I wonder if, one, if you, you could comment on that, because I think that the conclusion that I came to after this 40,000 word thread was that as paradoxical as it is, the most important skills in the age of AI have absolutely nothing to do with AI. Yeah, I think AI is going to reveal what being human is by revealing what it can't do. Mm-hmm. And so it's really good at language synthesis. Uh, it's uh, really good at s- sort of short-term memory, or it's really good at amassing large amounts of data. It does not understand anything. Uh, it, it does not have motivations. It does not have drives. It can mimic emotion, but obviously it doesn't have any emotions. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I think, I think A, you should write that book. Uh, but I do think uh, the ability to make another human being feel uh, welcomed uh, to offer genuine sympathy as opposed to synthetic sympathy, uh, the ability to improve your life by improving what you love. Uh, and so St. Augustine famously said, you become what you love and you should be careful what you love because you'll become it. And if you love money, you'll become obsessed with money. If you love power, you'll always feel insecure. Uh, but if you love friendship, then you'll probably be happy. Uh, and if you violate friendship in order for, to get more money or to get more popularity, then you've put a lower love above a higher love. And so I, I think it'll, it's going to usher in an age of, of great humanity. I mean, the, the good part about AI, I think it'll make us all a lot smarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov now, like 24 years ago or so, uh, what happened to the world of chess? Yeah. Uh, as I understand it, the chess grandmasters of today are way better than Gary Kasparov ever was because they've been training on these machines. Mm-hmm. And so their intelligence has been augmented. On the other hand, 
people with bad uh, motives will have much more power to do bad things. So really what matters a lot in the age of AI is the quality of your soul. Are you well-intentioned and use AI for good? Or are you bad-intentioned and use AI for bad? Yeah. And so I think that kind of moral formation is, again, much more important because the, the tools and weapons we have at our hand are more powerful. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's funny because one of the chapters that, you know, I ended up outlining was about the skills that matter, you know, beyond AI. And one was about emotional intelligence. And I'll, I'll give you an example because, like, I, I've, I think the idea that this dehumanizes us is kind of short-sighted. I, you know, my, I have a one-year-old nephew who have been just, and I've been keeping a list of all the words that he knows inside of my AI note-taking app. And one day I was like, I just finished reading a, a book that one of our upcoming guests had written. And I was like, I remembered something from that book. I was like, oh, he mentioned Dr. Seuss. I was like, can you take my nephew's list of 50 words and turn this into a Dr. Seuss-style book? And I was like, great. And then I went into ChatGPT. I was like, my nephew's favorite books are these high-contrast books. Can you make it, you know, like do the illustrations to match in that style? And the most beautiful thing was when I was showing him the the proofs, you know, we haven't gotten the physical version yet. He was just shouting the words out loud. And I thought to myself, I'm like, yeah, that is like, in my mind, one of the things that we're not seeing is that this can actually be something very human. Yeah, I think one of the things that we're led astray by is the phrase artificial intelligence, because it gives the impression that the machine has the intelligence. But really, it's just synthesizing human intelligence and basically human language. And so I, too, I think it, it can. I, at the first, I thought it's never going to produce a piece of artwork that really moves me. Mm-hmm. But I've been humbled to see some photographs or paintings that it has produced that are humbling, are, are very moving. But that's because it's synthesizing what other humans have done. But I, I think the one thing I'm suspicious of it ever doing, for example, is a distinct voice. That it's great at synthesizing the mass of humanity's output. But the way Joan Didion used to write, the way Tom Wolfe used to write, uh, the way Leo Tolstoy wrote, uh, I think the distinctiveness and having a distinctive voice will be tremendously valuable because I think it'll have struggle with that. Do you want me to tell you the hack to get around that? I figured this out sure. last week. The biggest mistake people make is that they ask the AI questions. So I actually said, all right, you know what? Instead of me, you answering my questions, I want you to generate an outline and I will write it, but I just need you to prompt me with questions in order to write it. And it ended up coming out and I'd send it to three friends. They're like, wow, this is good. I was like, yeah, that's because it's in my voice refined. Like that was like one of those, and you know, a convenient byproduct of that is it kicks you into flow really fast. But are the questions, do they make sense sequentially? Are they this, the same progression of questions that you would, you would ask me or you would ask it? Does it do questioning well? Yeah, it it actually does questioning well. In fact, it's better that way. And so I, I, you know, I ended up asking it. I was like, why did this work so well? And it went into this entire like dialogue about the cognitive benefits of questions. And I was like, okay, great. That's going to be a chapter in this book idea. Or, you know, because I think that that's our, we kind of treat it as a better Google. Like I shifted into basically two groups, what I call the better Google paradigm and the new era of creation paradigm. Whereas the first paradigm is all about execution. The second one is about exploration. Right. That's great. And then I I think you should write that book because that is exactly the nexus of where I think we have a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's actually get deeper into your book um, because, you know, like I said, I, I think to me, there's always such a depth to your books and you touch on these huge topics that, you know, sort of impact our lives. I mean, we've kind of been talking about it to a degree, but we've just touched the introduction. But what was the, the genesis of this book? Like, why was this the sort of next logical book for you? Uh, I think a couple of things. Uh, one, I'd written a lot about the, the decay of social life in America, basically, uh, the rise of suicide, the rise of depression, uh, the, 
36% of Americans say they feel persistently lonely. Uh, 45% of high school students say they're persistently despondent or hopeless. The number of people who have uh, no close personal friends is, uh, is up by four times since 2000. So there's just this social crisis. And I'd written a bunch about relationships and community uh, and stuff and social capital. Uh, but it, it occurred to me that's all too abstract, that community is an abstract word. But what community really is, is a concrete set of social encounters. So if we're going to do well as a democracy, we have to be a lot better at doing social encounters. So that was the noble uh, social reason for doing the book, uh, the patriotic reason. But then there's the selfish, grubby reason is that I'm not naturally good at this. I want to get better. Mm -hmm. And so writers, we're all working on our stuff in public. And one, one of my favorite sayings about writers is, we're beggars who tell other beggars where we found bread. And so, if, <laughs> and so, you know, if I find something in some book of psychology that I find helpful and uh, how to end a conversation well, then, and I can repeat that, I, I derive great satisfaction of spreading the wallet, the knowledge I happen to come across. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm thinking about how we approach this and how we pack, you know, so much insight into a 30 minute conversation that we have left. So, Let's start with the, the two distinctions you make between illuminators and diminishers and, and how this relates to that whole idea of, you know, knowing and actually seeing a person. Yeah, so diminishers are people who, who don't see you. They, they make you feel invisible, unseen, uncared for. And partly it's because they don't ask you questions. They're just not curious about you. And I often leave a party and I think, you know, that whole time nobody asked me a question. Uh, and... Uh, I've come to conclude only about 40% of humans are question askers. The rest are perfectly nice people. They're just not that curious. Uh, and then the diminishers also stereotype. They ignore. They do a thing called stacking, which is when they learn one fact about you, they make a whole series of assumptions about what the rest of you must be like. Mm. And that's a great way to missee somebody. Illuminators, on the other hand, are persistently curious about you. Uh, they, they pay close attention. They learn to see the world a little from your point of view. And they make you feel respected, seen, and lit up. And so, for example, there was a novelist who wrote about 100 years or so ago named Ian Forster. And his biographer wrote of him was to talk to him was to be seduced by an inverse charisma, a sense of being listened to with such intensity, you had to be your best and most honest and sharpest self. It'd be great to be him. And then the final story I'll, I'll tell on this is a story that may be apocryphal, but it gets a point across, uh, told about Jenny Jerome who would go on to become Winston Churchill's mom. But when she was a young woman, before all that, she was in Victorian England, and one night at dinner, she was at a big dinner party, and she happened to be seated next to William Gladstone, the Prime Minister of England, and she left that meal thinking that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England. And then sometime later, she was at another dinner party, and she was asked to, she was seated next to Benjamin Disraeli, who was Gladstone's great political rival, and she left that dinner party thinking that she was the cleverest person in England. And so you want to be the person who makes other people light up and shine. And so that's being an illuminator. Yeah. The The funny thing is, I think that one thing that people find difficult, and it's funny because, you know, Charles Duhigg just wrote a, a new book called Super Communicators. And we were just talking about this yeah. and how, you know, we start to like getting to a level of depth and asking people deep questions. But one of the things you say is that when you're first getting to know someone, you don't want to try to peer into their souls right away. It's best to look at something together through small talk and doing mundane stuff together. Your unconscious mind is moving with mine and we're getting a sense of each other's energy, temperament and manner. We're attuning with each other's rhythms and moods, acquiring a kind of subtle tacit knowledge about each other that's required before other kinds of knowledge can be broached. 
we become we're becoming comfortable with each other and comfort's no small thing. Nothing can be heard in the mind until the situation feels safe and familiar to the body. Now, what's funny about that to me is I start almost every interview and I started an interview with you today by asking what is a pretty layered and personal question. So talk yeah. to me about that as it relates to this, because I don't really waste a lot of time on small talk, I'd like to think. Yeah, I think, I mean, part of we're sort of in a podcast yeah. setting, so it's sort of set up for serious conversation. Right. But if you were to sit down next to me on the plane and you're, you turn to me and uh, you pass me the peanuts and then you said, so have you, your parents influenced your life? I'd be like, oh, wait a second here. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I love that question. And but, you know, I often start out it by just by asking people how they got their name or something they're proud of. People love to talk about what they're proud of. Mm. So if they're wearing their kids sports team jersey, they love to talk about that. But I think your instinct is the right one. I think we we are way too timid and shy that we assume that if we ask the question like you asked me off at the top, uh, people will say, none of your damn business. You're invading my privacy. And I've spent a few decades as a journalist asking people personal questions. And the number of times somebody has said to me, none of your damn business is zero. No one ever says that because I've found that if you ask people respectfully uh, to tell the story of their lives, they're ecstatic to do it. Um, one of the people I cite in the book is a guy named Dan McAdams, who is a psychologist in Northwestern, and he, he studies how people uh, tell their life stories, how they shape the plot and the characters of their life story. And so he pulls people into his lab. He asks them a bunch of questions. Tell me the high points of your life, the low points of your life, the turning points of your life. Uh, and then at the end of four hours, he hands them a little check to compensate them for their time. And a lot of people just push the check back and say, I'm not taking money for this. This has been one of the best afternoons of my life. And no one has ever asked them. And so uh, we should be a lot. We underestimate how much we'll enjoy deep conversations. We underestimate how quickly people want to go deep. And we'll just have more fun in life if we ask the big questions like you just did. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I think you also, you write about, you know, certain traits that enable these kinds of conversations with this much depth. The first being accompaniment. And you say when you're accompanying someone, you're in a state of relaxed awareness, attentive and sensitive and unhurried. You're not leading or directing the other person. You're just riding along as they experience the ebbs and flows of daily life. And I love that because you also used a music analogy. And when you did that, it, it made me think like I, I played the tuba for nine years and I, you know, I, I, was, <laughs> I, I was good enough to like be a soloist. And I remember my band director's wife accompanied me on the piano and it brought back that memory. But I never thought about it in, in the context of a conversation. Can you expand on what that means and also the, the traits that you associate with it? Yeah, I just had a conversation with a pianist on, on how to accompany him. And I'm not a musician, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But they said, no, you're, you're like following the person as they make a series of choices. They're setting a flow, they're setting a rhythm, and you're there to make them shine. Uh, and so I found a, a very humble, other-centered way of being in the world. And I, you know, I have a friend who sort of does that socially. He's just, he's always, you know, paying attention to you, what, what's going on in your life. How can I be of help? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's just this, um, generous way of being, uh, I've got a, we've got friends in Washington who say, we like our friends, uh, to be lingerable. Uh, we want them to be the kind of people who are such good companies. You just want to linger with them. And that means you're not steering the relationship. You're just letting it develop and you're just having fun together and the relationship will develop on its own pace. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some patience in there 
before you can get really deep with another person. So the friend, is this the guy who hands out the five index cards? Because I remember hearing about that thinking, I got to have you tell that story. The other centered person was indeed that friend. His name is David Bradley. Uh, and he, he is just, he ends, literally ends any, every conversation I've had with him. And he's been a good friend for me for many years. Uh, what can I help you with? Uh, and that's just his basic posture. And he has a phrase that he uses, coming in under. And so when he's in a conversation, he's not lecturing down. He's coming in under. How can I be a use? How can I be of use? And the thing he does most famously is what his whole friendship circle calls the David Bradley index card uh, trick. Or it's not even a trick. It's a practice where you come to him with some problem, like maybe you're trying to decide whether to take this job or that job or marry this person or not marry that person or divorce this person or not divorce. And you go into his office uh, and he asks you a bunch of questions. Uh, and... Then he, after about half hour, he hands you a newspaper and he says, here, read this for 10 minutes. I'll be right with you. And he hands you the paper and you're reading it, but really you're looking over the paper and looking at him and he's furiously writing down stuff on index cards. And then after about 15 minutes, he hands you the cards and the cards are not the answer to your problem. The cards are a decision-making matrix for how to think about your problem. And so I went to him once years ago because I was overwhelmed by stuff, the stuff to do. And he, he put one index card, the things I like to do. And then on another index cards, the way I'm actually spending my time. And then on the third and fourth index cards, a whole way of thinking so I can make what I like to do really how I'm spending my time and how to structure decisions before I say yes and before I say no. Uh, and what what I really value in my life. And it was tremendously useful. And people who've had the index card treatment done to them, some of them put the cards on their mirror and so they see them every day. Some people, 20 years after he did it, they stop him and say, you changed my life with that treatment. So it's just he, he attentively pays attention to people. And then he's really good at trying to think through decision-making processes. So he's not solving your problems, but he's giving you a structure so you can solve your own. Yeah. Well, Let's talk about one other thing. You talk about the idea of, of two layers of reality. You say there's the objective reality of what happens and there's the subjective reality of how what happened is seen, interpreted, main meaningful. The second subjective layer can sometimes be the more important layer. And this is the one that we want to focus on. And so one thing I wonder is, why are we so blind to that subjective reality? And how does it relate to another idea that you talk about later in the book, which is the concept of either trauma assimilation or integration? Yeah, well, so one of my favorite, one of the key quotes in the book is from Aldous Huxley, experience is not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. And so some people suffer abuse and are traumatized and really disrupted. Some people suffer abuse and they, they figure out how to accept the horrible thing that happened to them, but their life, they have a very different experience of what happened to them than other people. And so we don't really see the world with our eyes. We see with our whole life. And we underestimate how different the same situation looks to other people. And so we may be all at a party and it seems like we're all in the same room, surrounded by the same people, looking at the same things, but we are all having very different experiences of the party, depending on our history, depending on our personality structure, depending on a thousand different things. There's a study I cite in the book um, that was done way back in the 1950s People at Princeton and Dartmouth were uh, watching a completely vicious football game between the two schools and each side that thought that their other team had committed twice as many penalties. And researchers weeks later showed them the game film 
And each side took a look at the game film and said, see, this is objective proof that uh, the other side committed twice as many penalties as our side. So even when looking at the film, they saw completely different games. There was no one thing called the game. The only thing is how it's seen by each person. And so the upshot of this is when I'm going to get to know you, I can't just try to imagine what happened to you. And I don't even primarily care what happened to you. I care what you made of what happened to you, what meaning you tell, what meaning you tell now about what happened to you. And so if I'm going to get to know you, that's why questions are so important. I can't try to put myself in your shoes. I have to ask you a question. And then to move on to the, I'm I'm forgotten what it was. Yeah, assimilation and integration. Was yeah, that, was I think that, that the, was the yeah. distinction I made between the two. Like what, you know, you, you kind of like laid it out in the way I interpreted it was some people assimilate to trauma, assimilate the trauma and other people integrate it. Uh, yeah. And I thought that was pretty related to what we just talked about as, as far as subjective and objective reality go. Yeah, so if you're somebody loses a spouse, some people say, okay, I have my basic worldview and I'm going to try to integrate that uh, or assimilate that into my existing worldview. Other people say, no, I've just lost a spouse or I've just had cancer. I've got to totally update and modernize my worldview. And if you want to adapt to trauma well, you've got to prefer the second route. Don't try to assimilate into your old worldview. You have to realize you have to go through a process of worldview change. You have to update your models. Mm -hmm. And that process of updating your models after loss is what we call grief. And the mind is is working its own way at its own time, with its own repetitiveness of changing how it sees the world. And that's just a process, a hard process we have to go through. Well, I know one of the questions that you posed, I can't find the exact thing because I took so many notes on your book, was about, uh, you know, sort of how somebody's like traumatic experience or really like life-changing experience reshaped their entire view on what was important, what mattered. I'm paraphrasing what you said. But for you, like what have been, what's been one of those inflection points in your life that made you change the way you saw everything? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I got divorced about 11 years ago now, so 12 years or 10 years ago, somewhere in that. I'm very bad at retroactive time estimation. Um, and so I, I went through a divorce. Um, I went through some hard times. I was living alone, um, quite lonely, um, aware of that I'd sort of misled my life. I, I'd spent too much time at work. I hadn't been open with my own emotions. I hadn't really been brave enough to confront my own emotions. I had the normal male fear, fear of intimacy and the normal idiot male response, which is to try to be a workaholic and uh, cover over what's going on deep inside. And so I went through a process of um, of trying to improve myself and try to become more familiar with my emotions, more better at intimacy, better at emotional expression. Uh, and I've had any number of people tell me that they almost don't recognize me compared to who I was uh, 15 or 20 years ago. I just Last week, I was talking to a guy who's our kids went to school together. And he said, I, I always thought you hated me. And I said, I never had any negative thought about you. But because I was sort of withdrawn and aloof, he interpreted that as dislike. Uh, and that wasn't hate. That was just me being socially inept. And so I've, I've tried to become a little socially ept, if that's a word. Uh, and this book is a project to that. Well, I, you know, I think what strikes me as so paradoxical about that is the things you mentioned are what your books are largely about. Yeah, well, we're, like I say, we're all working out our shit in public. Yeah. And so we, so we're just trying to like, I, I, you know, the first book I wrote in this process of self-improvement, I guess you'd call it, uh, was a book called The Social Animal. So I've read that. It's a book about, it's a book about emotion and a book about the unconscious. And so I'm classic University of Chicago intellectual type. I, 
I don't just have emotions. I need to write a book about emotions to teach myself to have emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's do this. I want to cover one other final thing. This is out of personal interest because I need to figure out how to deal with family members who are difficult. Let's talk about this concept of defensive architecture. Can you first define it for us and then we'll go into the problems with it and then talk about how to how to address it? Yeah, so defense is, this is a a classic psychological concept, is the children um, experience the world and they do what they need to do to survive. Uh, And so uh, uh, some kids, they get abused. And so they build a defensive architecture where they see threat and they're hypersensitive to threat. Some kids are, they're not given a sense of that they uh, are worthy, that people will show up for them. And so their defensive architecture tends to be the world will never give me what I need. And I just got to get used to that. Some people, they're afraid of emotion uh, or they have negative emotional experiences. And so their defensive architecture is um, avoidance. And I think I think I specialize in that one. Uh, and so they basically go through life avoiding emotions as much as they can. And the, the, the defenses work because they're under certain circumstances, but eventually they all become outdated. If you, if you go through life thinking the world is threat, then you'll see threat everywhere, even where no threat exists. And you'll, you'll be a very combative person and life will turn out to be kind of unpleasant. And so we all need our defenses for a time, but most of us need to overcome the defensive architecture we, we built up early in order to survive. Yeah. So how do you overcome that defensive architecture? Then what's the key to that? Yeah, in my case, it, w- it was avoidance. It was like the, you know, the emotionally avoid. I once spoke to a teacher who said, I, I had an avoidance student come into my classroom like a sailboat tacking into the wind. He wanted to get close to me, the teacher, but he didn't know how to do it. So he was like, you know, just sort of hanging around, hoping some sort of human contact would happen. And in my case, I just had to learn to uh, force myself into circumstances that went against some of my natural proclivities. And one thing that happened to me at a conference like a year ago was I was at a, you know, I'm a lot of journalists, you'd think we'd be socially uh, very adept because a, a lot of our job is like interviewing people, but a lot of journalists are socially awkward and we go into journalism because the interview structures are social encounters. It's a much easier thing to do than a two-way conversation. And so I was sort of like that. And then I went to a conference about a year ago and we read a room and they gave us hundreds of people, a sheet of paper with song lyrics on it. And it was lyrics to a love song. And the person on stage said, okay, pick a stranger that you don't know and sing the love song into their eyes. And if you had told me like five years to do go to do this, I would have spontaneously combusted. Uh, but I did it. And I, it's like a matter of getting yourself skilled enough so you can do emotional vulnerability and even in front of a stranger. Yeah. Well, in the interest of time, uh, I want to go into the sort of final part of the book, which is what you call the theory of life tasks, where you say, if you want to understand someone well, you have to understand what life tasks they're in the middle of and how their mind has evolved to complete this task. Human lives aren't so formulaic, they can't be reduced to a series of neat stages, but you kind of broke it up this way to kind of give us an understanding. So let's go first into what you call the imperial task consciousness. Yeah. So if, when you're a kid, you want to, you want to show you can do things in the world. Uh, and so your main task in the, is to show, yeah, I have industry. I have control. I can be a success in the world. And in that task, sometimes, uh, what other people are thinking are le- is less important. Uh, but sometimes defying authority is important to show you can do things in the world. So a, a kid in his terrible twos, uh, will do something not just that mom doesn't like. He'll do, do it because mom doesn't like it. 
just to show he can, he can, uh, take some control over his own life. And people confronted by this life task tend to be very competitive. Uh, boys in particular tend to be quite competitive. Um, and they want to show they're the best. They want to show they're, they can succeed. Uh, and so sometimes I think I look at, frankly, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, and I think they, they've never grown out of their imperial task. <laughs> They're, everything's a status symbol to them. They just want to show they're powerful. They can do stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the uh, first immature stage in life. Right. I shouldn't say stage, but task. Yeah. That takes us to the interpersonal task. And you say that people in the midst of the interpersonal task often become idealistic. The person with an interpersonal consciousness can not only experience other people's experiences, she can experience the experience of humanity as a whole. She can feel the pain of community and be driven to heal that pain. And so think of high school. When we're in high school, uh, we're super, con- our, our main task is no longer to show industry that we have agency in the world. Our main task is to establish a social identity and show we can build friendships. And so we're super conscious of the, how other people see us. We're super pa- painful when somebody slights us or insults us or cuts us off or breaks up with us. We don't yet have an internal architecture of our own identity. We really rely on other people's architecture. And so when you move from the imperial task to the, the interpersonal task, in the first task, if you, I ask a little kid to define themselves, they'll say, well, I play soccer. Uh, if I ask a, an adolescent how to define themselves, uh, they'll say, well, I'm cheerful. And so suddenly they, they're giving themselves a psychological character uh, category, not just a, some, an active activity category. And so their whole consciousness has shifted to do this thing they need to do, which is to establish a social identity and to make friendships with others. The problem with that is if you do get, somebody dumps you at that stage, as I say, you have no internal architecture to fall back on. You're so reliant on others' opinions. You have to grow and develop another life, another life chance. Well, so you you, you Putin and, you know, Trump as examples, like the first really bad breakup I had was when I was 36, the one that made a mess of my head. So I'm wondering, like, I assume that people just based on their level of emotional intelligence maturity will find themselves in each one of these stages at different points. Each person's would be very different, not just, you know, age, right? Right, or not even go through this. What I'm drawing on is about 100 years of developmental psychology. And uh, these are people like Eric Erickson and the contemporary guy, Robert Keegan, who's at Harvard. Uh, And the mistake the developmental psychologists, some of them made was to think it was like, stages. You had to go through one stage and then the next stage and then the next stage. It's like you have to take algebra one before you can take algebra two. But life is never that neat. Uh, and not everybody goes through every stage and, and not everybody goes through them in the same order. But the point of that chapter is that you can't really know a person unless you know what what's, what task they're facing. And so, for example, now I'm, I'm older and I'm, I'm leaving, I think, or hope, I'm leaving what's called the career consolidation task, which is how to establish myself in the world. And hopefully moving on to the task that is the, the best way to do old age, which is called generativity, which is this need to give back to society. Uh, and it's a more servant-oriented and altruistic stage or task. Uh, and I find myself in the middle uh, trying to give back to society while also still trying to check my Amazon ranking to see if my book is selling. So... <laughs> Well, I, 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 you know, I, I was like, that's funny because I'm like, David Brooks worries about his book selling well. <laughs> was my first thought. <laughs> You know, I, I, the, the, the book that came out the same day as mine was Britney Spears, which is, of course, it sold like <laughs> millions and millions of copies. And I, I sit there wondering, like, Britney Spears, after all the success she's had in life and with all the pain, does she check her Amazon ranking? Does she care? And my guess is she's human. So she probably like, yeah, I want some validation here. Yeah. 
Well, we'll come back to that because I think there's some, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I think that'll make a nice end towards our conversation. But one of the things you're talking about here is parenthood. You said at first when they become parents, like people get into this generative test and parenthood often teaches people to how to love in a giving way. And later when they're in middle aged or older become mentors, they adapt a gift logic. How can I give back to the world that replaces the meritocratic logic of the career consolidation years? So a couple of questions come from this one. You know, are you a parent? And if so, how, how, if, if you are, how the things that you write about influenced your own parenting? And, you know, I ask therapists this question all the time. Do you ever get the, you know, sort of, hey, stop being a psychologist and just be my mom? Like, hey, stop being David Brooks, the writer, and just be my dad? Yeah. Uh, I would say, um, first, um, I, I'm a parent. I have three kids. Uh, they're grown now, but, um, I would say one of the nice things about my kids is they, um, never tolerated uh, much of my work life to penetrate the home. Mm. And so as far as I know, I do this show every week called the PBS News Hour. As far as I know, none of my three kids have ever seen an episode of that. Uh, I know <laughs> I know, for, I, <laughs> I know for a fact that two of my kids have never read a page of any of my books. Uh, and so we just go through life. And one of the nice things my kids did was they liberated me from any workaholic tendencies when they were young because they just wanted to play. And so I always wanted to play. And so, uh, I, I think I, I hope my, um, my work has made me a more human father now that it's in relationship adult to adult. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think my public life was pretty separate from my family life. Uh, except for sometimes people, because I do this TV show, people would come up to me on the street to say something about whatever, whatever I said on TV. And when I, he was eight, my youngest son said, you know, they come for you, but they stay for me. Uh, <laughs> And so I think that was the only relationship between the outer world and the inner world. Well, it's funny now that you've told me that I don't feel so bad about the fact that my dad hasn't read my books because he's a weirdo. He's a college professor who doesn't read books. I've never seen him reading a book a day in my life. <laughs> I think that's true of a lot of college professors. They, it's like the workman's holiday. Yeah. Well, let's finish this up with this one final area, which is this contrast between paradigmatic thinking and narrative thinking. You say that paradigmatic yeah. thinking is great for understanding data, making the case for a proposition and analyzing trends across populations. It's not great for seeing an individual person. Narrative thinking, on the other hand, is necessary for understanding the individual in front of you. Stories capture the unique presence of a person's character and how he or she changes over time. Stories capture how a thousand little influences come together to shape a life, how people struggle and strive, how their lives are knocked out by lucky and unlucky breaks. When something, someone is telling you their story, you get a much more personal, complicated, and attractive image of the person. You get to experience the person. You, you get to experience their experience. But the thing that struck me most was this. You said that we live in a culture that is paradigmatic rich and narrative poor, and that this ability to construct our life narrative is something we really have no ability to do, and we're not taught how to do. Yeah, there's a distinction I got from Jerome Bruner, a prominent psychologist, this paradigmatic narrative. And paradigmatic is most of what us do on the job. It's writing a memo. It's crafting a PowerPoint presentation. It's writing a legal brief. It's, um, in my case, writing a newspaper column. It's a way of communicating that is not very personal and in many cases is designed to be impersonal. And so you're communicating, but you're not really learning about a person. And what academics do, or what social scientists do, is they amass data on people. And that's good if you want to understand the trends across a lot of people. It's not good at all if you want to understand the unique human being you have right in front of you. And so for that, you want narrative. And so, for example, I, um, I never ask people, 
uh, what do you think about this anymore? I ask them, how did you come to believe this? Uh, and that way they're telling me a story about somebody shaped their values or some experience they had. And you're getting a richer version. Another conversational tip I heard from an expert was make them authors, not witnesses. Mm -hmm. When people tell you about something that happened in their life, they don't go into enough detail. And so if you uh, say, well, where was your boss sitting when she said that? Suddenly they're in the scene and they're giving you a narrative description. And I used to do these Sunday talk shows in Washington, Meet the Press. And the way it works is the host asks a bunch of gotcha questions. The newsmakers like senators or something evade. And it's not that interesting. It's not that useful to me. Uh, what they should do is they should say, why'd you get into this line of work? Tell me about why you do this. What, who shaped you? And we'd learn more about the newsmakers. And I think it would yield a better politics if we were just leaned more into narrative and less into paradigmatic. Yeah. Well, you know, in the interest of time, I want to finish with one final thing. We were just joking about your sort of need for validation. And I, I kind of like was thinking to myself, wow, David Brooks checks his Amazon rankings. What the hell? Like, I, yeah. <laughs> like this is a guy who's written, you know, all these New York Times bestselling books. You're a well-known New York Times columnist. So, you know, like for you at age, you know, how is one your need for validation evolved? Um, and two, uh, you know, by the standards of anybody listening to this show, you are incredibly successful. But I wonder for you, like what that the def what the definition of success has meant with time and how it's changed with age. Yeah, I, I you know I become way more career successful than I ever imagined. When I was starting out, you know, I was like everybody else. All my pieces were getting rejected. I was tending bar. Um, and I thought, well, if I get a job at an airline magazine, that'll be good. I'll be good. And so I've way exceeded that by the normal standards. But I will tell you, uh, the first time I had a book on the bestseller list, um, I was out in LA uh, and it was, the year was 2000. And my agent called to tell me I was on the bestseller list, like a dream for any writer. And I was like, wow, this just feels like nothing. It feels like nothing. And it was sort of, it was like worldly success and it was outside of me. It wasn't directly happening to me. And I will say candidly that uh, having become successful has spared me the anxiety I might have felt if I felt I was a failure. But it has not given me much positive happiness or joy. And the sources of happiness and joy are the same things that everybody enjoys, which is, you know, having fun with your kids or yeah, hanging around with your friends at a bar late at night. Um, and I would say if you orient your life around a kind of career success, as at least in my experience, not only in my own experience, but a lot of people I know who are also successful, it's a, you're aiming at a disappointment. You're, you're heading yourself up for disappointment because yeah. it doesn't produce that much positive happiness. It really doesn't. Uh, it's the, the same old stupid things we all know. It's relationships. It's, it's fun. It's experiences. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's very far away. <laughs> success it's it's um, readers who i don't know <laughs> yeah you know it reminds me uh, of something that uh the actor shark Khan said. I, I don't know if you've watched the the david letterman show where uh, uh my next guest needs no introduction but he had shark Khan, which he had his own episode i think it was like not even part of the entire series but the thing that stayed with me the most out of that interview because you know shark Khan is like this iconic character is like more famous around the world than most american actors and one of the things he said to Letterman was that I'm a, an employee of the myth of Shah Rukh Khan. And mm, I thought, what mm, a way to separate mm. yourself from like your public persona that people attribute all these things to. Yeah, I uh, once read this Truman Capote was walking down the street, Fifth Avenue, New York, with uh, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, and 
there. And Marilyn Monroe says to him, in the next five blocks, I'm going to walk as Billie Jean, which is her actual name or Norma Jean. I forget what it is. But anyway, that's her normal. And she's walking down the street just and nobody stops. Nobody knows her. And then she says to him, the next five blocks, I'm going to walk as Marilyn. And so she changes her posture, her strut, and suddenly she's a star. And within half a block, she's surrounded by a crowd. And so that your story reminded me of this story, that the, the persona that you play in your public life can be a persona. And I think the danger is when you confuse your persona with your actual self. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I like I always tell people, I was like, my parents could give two shits that I, I wrote a best selling book or any of that. My mom still yells at me when I you know don't put the cap on the toothpaste. That doesn't change any of that. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, in the interest, well, it's of, nice that you can afford a nicer house. If you but for the best <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we could talk about this all day because I mean, we're effectively talking about the experience of what it means to be human here. But in the interest of time, I want to finish with my last question, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, that's good. Um, I think something that uh, is unmistakable is somebody writing it out of their depths and not of their shallows, uh, that they really are writing out of the core sources of tension and agony or sometimes joy in their life. And so, for example, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan, which you're compelled to be if you're my age and you grew up on the East Coast. Uh, and um, I often wonder, how does this guy sing the same songs in 2023 with such passion that he wrote in 1974? And I think because he really is singing out of his depths, he's singing out of the core experiences of his life. And those haven't changed that much. So he can still do so with passion and authenticity. Whereas other musicians, they just, it was a pop song they wrote 20 years ago. And if you go to see them in concert now, they're just going through the paces. And so I think it is like we all have these, these core tensions, one or two core tensions that we're just trying to work out and we're probably never going to solve it. And if you write out of those depths, then you're writing out of your, your authentic self. Beautiful. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Uh, not that you know anybody couldn't easily find you, but where can they find out more about you, your work, uh, and and the new book? Uh, well, they can go to that aforementioned Amazon page. <laughs> now, they you know I'm easily findable, but my most of my writing, aside from books, is in the New York Times and the Atlantic Monthly magazine. So I'm I'm around. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.